Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to some patron emails, but let me introduce the podcast first. This is the Psychology at Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This first email is an anonymous uh, email from an anonymous patron, and she writes, um, I'll just summarize. She, she basically is writing that her mother is severely cognitively impaired and extremely medically fragile. And she's had surgery. She's had brain surgery. She has seizures. She's often confused. She has compromised motor skills. And she has some condition that makes it so that she's really short of breath. And right now they're contemplating whether or not they should put her on oxygen in order to uh, keep her alive. But she, in order, in order for her to be on oxygen, she needs to be in a home because in a, in a care facility because she can't handle being on an oxygen tank on her own in her own house because it's having an oxygen tank and all that kind of stuff is a little complicated. You need someone to monitor that. Twenty four seven, or at least frequently, and so this patient's writing in and is very confused, doesn't know what to do, and is upset about this because she's, you know, watching her mother suffer, and is worried her mother's going to die, and once she also worries about putting her mom in a care facility because the mom won't like that very much, right? Because she, she would have to leave her house. So the patron has this. Sophie's choice of, okay, either extend my mother's life and help her with her oxygen intake by putting her in a facility, but my mom will hate that and um, to some extent might not even understand why she's being being put there. On the other hand, uh, I could keep her at home or wherever she is right now, not put her on oxygen and have her die sooner suffer more through seizures and short shortness of breath and other kind of thing other other kinds of things. And so she's asking me if I have any resources or if I have any advice about what to do. And the the answer I have to that is there is no answer to that. Uh, I'm I'm still busted up about having to euthanize my cat 4 months ago. It was a terrible choice. And I, there's a, you know, there's a part of me that thinks I made the wrong choice. Um, more of me believes I made the right choice, but the quote unquote right choice doesn't feel good. I mean, the, the right choice was to prematurely kill my beloved animal, cat, pet, companion, friend, um, attachment figure. Uh, that was the quote unquote, better answer was to drop uh, or to, you know, bring my cat to the vet and have the vet kill my cat. You know, we use these words like euthanize and all these kinds of things, but you know, it's, it's, it's killing, it's ending of life. And if left to the universe, the cat would have died of starvation or something within a few days, I'm guessing. So there's that. But, you know, I could have spent $20,000 on diagnosing and treating the cat and maybe extending the cat's life another, I don't know, year or two. I don't know. But I wasn't willing to spend 
ten, twenty thousand dollars didn't have that money to spend. And so there's this horrible reality of that. And although I would imagine my attachment to my mother would be a billion times greater than my attachment to my cat. Well, not a billion, but no, let's say a hundred times greater than my cat. Really love my cats and my dogs. Um, so, so the patron is dealing with something far greater, I would imagine. Uh, but the decision to some extent is, is made even worse by the fact that the expectation is that with humans, we will do everything we can to extend life. And with animals, we have an attitude of like, well, you know, quality of life, blah, blah, blah. We never do that with humans, or very rarely is that a part of the conversation with humans. You know, people don't say, well, you know, what's the quality of her life? Should we put her down? Should we put her to sleep? You know, referring to someone's mother. And I'm not saying we should, but my point is, is that when it came to the cat, there were a pretty much a unanimous opinion that it was time to euthanize the cat. And the vets agreed. In fact, the vets had been suggesting I euthanize the cat long before. So I hell, I was the only one holding out. And so by the time I decided to uh, move towards euthan, euthanization, euthanization, euthanizing, I, um, you know, everyone else was like, yeah, well, we've been waiting for you to make that choice. When it comes to humans, it's a different kind of thing. Of course, you have physicians who have uh, frank conversations about end of life and quality of life, but many don't. Or uh, you have families sometimes that are good about talking about it and some who aren't. Society certainly doesn't talk much about it. So I, it's, a, it's a rough choice. It's an impossible choice. Um, we, lived in a, you know, we live in a time now where we have technologies to extend people's lives when they never would have been able to live prior to even just 50 years ago. And we're put in this position for the first time in our species that we have to decide, us, as family, family members, exactly what is going to happen to someone's life and their quality of life. And, 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 um, and it's heartbreaking. There, every step of the way, it's heartbreaking. You know, For this patron, if she decides to extend life, which is... Um, nice, good news. The bad news is she has to disappoint her mother by putting her into this home, and and her mood could go down. She could get depressed, and then she could she could die sooner yet, or she could please her mother, leave her at home, and witness her going through seizures and and lack of oxygen and having to um, having to be short of breath. So, you know, I don't know, man. There's there's no there's no guide to that. So it, it's a similar, although far different emotional experience, decision as to whether or not you should marry someone or whether you should divorce somebody. There's, there's rarely a right answer to that. I mean, there's some circumstances where it's like, okay, well, he's a psychopath. You should probably divorce him. The vast majority of cases, it's, it's, it's really hard to know what the right choice is. And a lot of things hinge on it. So what I tell people in all those kinds of places, all those places where you're 
trying to compl- uh, trying to figure out a decision that is very difficult, whether that's divorce or marriage or a job or a medical decision for your dependent adult family member or euthanizing a cat for that matter is to get support is to talk about it is to feel your feelings because they're they're real and they're normal and they're good but suppressing them is bad and getting support is good and isolating is typically unhealthy so getting support going to therapy i have people who come to therapy with me to talk about questions like these and that's the only thing they want to talk about is is that uh, support groups, finding a support group, especially for medical things, your hospital, your physician should probably have some kind of resource around support groups of, uh, that have pe- other people suffering in a similar way. There's no answers in these groups. You know, a therapist isn't going to give you the answer. A good one isn't anyway. But it provides a place to talk. I, I have a client right now, and they are dealing with a very difficult choice in their life. And for, I don't know, three or four months, every week for an hour, we talk about this difficult choice that they have to make. And and I don't have an opinion inside or outside that I uh, about their choice, about whether or not they should choose door number one or door number two, because I see the dilemma. But I am there as a person who can be on the journey with this person, support them, validate them, point out maybe some things that are a little wrongheaded, a guilt about like if, if this anonymous patient were my client and we were talking and she was expressing that she felt like it was all her fault or something like I, I would point out how that is unfair to her and not valid. And, um, and also might kind of complicate things because, if you're bogged down in guilt, you might have a hard time actually moving forward with all of your life, let alone the decision. So there are there's perspective you can get from therapists and from support group members. Not answers, of course, but but a, a, what I have found with many people, and because I've been arguably, a, I don't know, a third of the clients that I've worked with have been along these lines, you know, should I divorce this person? Should I have kids? Should I become polyamorous? Should I marry this person? Should I take this job? Should I make this investment? Should I, um, you know, move back to my hometown? Should I even try to rekindle my relationship with my, uh, with my spouse, even though we've grown apart for 20 years? Should I, should I, should I? And, I know through experience that if I give someone enough space and enough validation and maybe some gentle um, confrontations around unhealthy thinking patterns, that people eventually get to a place of decision. Uh, should I reveal the affair I've been in? Should I end the affair? Should I have an affair? You know, all these kinds of things. It, it These kinds of decisions often find a... Um, a place people often find satisfaction in in choosing you know they're like right in the middle like oh should i choose option one option two i don't know i don't know i don't know and then eventually they find a place where um through enough 
exploration of support that they're like, you know what? Option two. I like option two. I've, I've been back and forth with this and I think option two is the best. And so, um, so anonymous patient, my, my answer to you is uh, to feel feelings. Um, grief is probably a lot of it. Confusion, isolation, guilt, you know, just keep, keep processing those feelings, talk about it, get support, keep, keep talking and don't expect there to be a good answer because there's, there is no good. I can't, the only good answer is if you have a magic wand and you can cure her, right? That I'm guessing that would be the only good answer. And that of course doesn't exist. So, so you have to choose between the lesser of several evils and none of them are going to feel good. They're all going to uh, produce suffering for everyone. And, and so you just have to know that you just have to say, well, regardless of what I do, there's going to be suffering and both options might have the equal amount of suffering. So, you know, what's the quote unquote right thing to do there? There isn't, you know, both of them have equal amounts of suffering or at least equal amounts of predictable suffering. And, um, you know, how do you make such a choice? It's, it's awful. Okay. Another patron email here. Um, from an anonymous patron, I'll basically summarize this email by saying that she was basically saying that our la- our recent episode in which I was with Michael Drain, in which we were talking about what it's like to work at a mental hospital, she she actually she said, you know, I've spent time in a mental hospital myself, and listening to that episode kind of hurt my feelings. She was nice about it. She was careful not to um, be hurtful to me because <laughs> you know that um, I can be hurt by things. Uh, and as soon as I read like just five words of this email, I immediately felt bad and and knew that I had made a mistake in that episode and, and probably other episodes along these lines. The, yeah, what? Um, so here's here's what I'll say is one is. It, it's totally reasonable for people to listen to the episode in which we talked about working at a mental hospital and to feel hurt by that. that it's totally valid. The way it, my mental memory of what we were talking about and the tone we had, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure would hurt people's feelings. Um, what I'll say is, I'll just tell you my, my journey with this, is that I have never worked in a mental hospital. I talked about how in that episode I used to, I worked in a, in a group home that had like three or four teenage girls in it and how it was really difficult to work there emotionally for me. And, um, after working there early in my career, never, never wanted to work in that kind of environment again. And how staff people who work there are underpaid and are saints in that they are, doing wonderful work and doing work that someone has to do. And, um, and they put up with a lot. Now the average psychiatric patient patient or the average group home member is not aggressive or mean in, in the episode, you know, working in a mental hospital, I just kind of went to the sensational stories because, because I, I don't know, I have some sort of sick f- fascination with it. I have other friends who have worked in uh, mental hospitals and have, psychiatric, you know, psychiatric facilities and have told me these stories about violence and other kinds of things. And for some reason, it it just, it interests me the same way that I suppose watching 
a train wreck on YouTube interests people or something. So, so that's just me. Um, the, the problem is, is that it basically paints this picture that if you're a patient in a mental institution or a psychiatric facility, that somehow that means you're aggressive and mean and psychopathic and harmful and all these kinds of things. And the, the fact is, is most patients are not. Um, I don't know the statistics, but um, the vast majority of patients are nice people. They're everyone in psychiatric facilities are suffering. That's for sure. So most people in a, and I have had friends and family who have gone to psychiatric facilities and are very nice people, you know, and would, would never hurt a fly. So, so when we were talking in the episode about working in a mental hospital, we were talking about, what, from my estimation, a very rare kind of patient. And that wasn't fair. It, you know, it'd be like talking about going to France or something and, and talking about the one or two people who were assholes and saying like, Oh, French people are assholes when the vast majority of French people are really nice. So it's, it's just unfair. And I apologize greatly for that. Um, I should know better. This is a show about being sensitive about having empathy. This is a show about trying to break down those stereotypes. And so, um, you know, to propagate those kinds of stereotypes and to, uh, be a part of that is morally wrong. Um, uh, but, it's, but here's my excuse. It's not a good excuse, but here, here's my explanation, I suppose, is that when therapists get together, they talk shop and they don't necessarily think about what it's like for clients or patients to have, to listen in on that conversation. You know, it's the same at, I'm sure at any kind of job, if you, are say I don't know you're um, a physician or something a surgeon or something and to the patients you're nice and you will t- tolerate a lot of things but then it's stressful and then you go home and you're you're like oh my god I had this one patient drove me crazy she you know she she was in so much pain and she was just driving me nuts and you would you know you're venting you're you're getting stuff off your chest well that's that's basically what me and Michael were doing in that episode. It doesn't make it right. And, and, and I've talked about before how there are plenty of situations in which um, therapists will get together and really horrifically talk crap about their patients and clients. So I'm not talking about that so much. I, I don't feel like that's what we did, but it was in that vein for sure. Um, so I apologize. I was wrong. It was wrong. Uh, I should have known better and, um, and, um, yeah. Okay. Let's go on to another email here. Josh from Oklahoma writes in patron. Josh from Oklahoma writes in says a debate has arisen in my graduate counseling cohort over the ethicality of advertising oneself as a Christian counselor. Some have felt that by openly affiliating with a dominant religion, It violates the ACA ethical code by discriminating against those who will not be comfortable coming to that therapist. Whether or not that counselor raises the issue of religion in session, uh, the overtone and the disclosure is there affecting the relationship. Others feel that if you advertised as a LGBT-friendly therapist, others feel it's as if 
you advertise yourself as an LGBT friendly therapist or other specialist, which is okay. What are your thoughts, Kirk? Uh, this is an interesting question. I've, I've never heard this debate before and I'd be curious. I mean, so my initial thing, my initial knee jerk reaction is that in my opinion, it's not an ethical violation to identify and advertise yourself as a Christian counselor. There are many uh, counselors, you know, a small percentage, but, but, many therapists who identify themselves as and, and, and advertise themselves as Christian counselors. And I've never thought of that as an ethical violation. So, uh, so I'd, I'm really curious as to why people would consider it an ethical violation. Um, I mean, you, you lay it out in your email. You're, you're saying that some people think that by openly affiliating with a dominant religion, it violates the ACA ethical code by discriminating by discriminating against those who will not be comfortable coming to that therapist. And certainly I see the logic in that. Um, but I don't know. It, it requires more exploration, I think. And, uh, and yeah, absolutely. I would be on the side of the other people in your class that are like, well, there's many ways you can advertise yourself as a therapist who will, that will alienate particular groups of people. Right. Um, I, for example, advertise myself as a LGBTQ friendly therapist. And, you know, there are millions of Americans who will feel uh, uncomfortable coming to me as a therapist because I identify as such. And we are not supposed to um, alienate people before meeting them, right? We're not supposed to discriminate, right? We're supposed to uh, allow, we're supposed to be open to everybody. And so if someone hated LGBT people, then I can't discriminate against them as a client. I have to accept them legally. Um, there's nuances to that, but that's the general rule. And, and to advertise myself as LGBTQ friendly, I'm, I'm basically saying don't come to me. I mean, in a sense, I'm saying don't come to me if you hate LGBTQ people uh, or if you're a particular kind of Christian, right? Um, now, that isn't what I'm trying to say, but I guess it could be interpreted that way, right? Um, so, uh, but I've never heard an ethical expert say that advertising yourself as a Christian counselor is an ethical violation. It just doesn't, it's not the consensus view. So I emailed that back to Josh and Josh wrote back. Uh, oh, actually what I asked him was, well, wait, what's your instructor saying? <laughs> because your instructor should be providing the quote unquote answer to this question. And Josh said that my instructor agrees that there's no ethical violation, though he's not a fan of people advertising themselves as Christian counselors because it injects a gray area into the therapeutic relationship. That is a blank slate under most counselor client relationships. That is a blank. Oh, it injects a gray area into the therapeutic relationship, um, which should be more of a blank slate. He says, in my eyes, I think it's a, an effective marketing strategy, especially in the South. However, because Christianity is the dominant religion in the country, it creates a social-cultural power imbalance that may be intimidating to a client who may be Wiccan or atheistic or something. Whereas LGBTQ, LGBTQ-friendly and other denoted specialties are not at, at the exclusion of others, whereas Christianity are, is inherently exclusionary. Um, blah, blah, blah. So my response to that was, well, I'm not sure that Christianity is inherently exclusionary, right? 
there, particularly in the Seattle area, there are many Christian therapists who absolutely identify as either LGBTQ friendly or LGBTQ themselves. I know queer Christian therapists in Seattle. Absolutely. So to advertise yourself as a Christian therapist doesn't, to me, mean that you are excluding any particular group or even bigoted or prejudicial or, um, you know, denouncing of anything. You know, there are millions of, there's, there's a, I don't know, a billion Christians on the planet uh, with different points of view. And um, so, you know, so in, in a way, if you say you're a Christian, to me, when I hear someone say, I've supervised, I've actually supervised Christian therapists before, um, not on their Christianity, but on their general practice. And we've talked about how they advertise themselves as Christian and what that means and um, the ethics involved and, you know, not imposing your view on other people. Um, and the Christian therapists that I've supervised have been, to my knowledge, very good about knowing that balance. Having said that, I've heard of Christian therapists and and other therapists who don't identify as Christian push their religion in this very horrific manner on their clients. So, um, uh, so you know, it's not like that doesn't happen. It does, but true Christianity, as I understand it, is loving, is non-judgmental, is humble, and doesn't push anything on anybody. Which. Uh, so true Christianity, as it's practiced by some people, not by everyone, of course, but by some, works extremely well with the philosophy and practice of therapy, the you know, giving to people, um, helping people to understand their feelings, forgiveness. You know, these are very um, central features to some forms of, of therapy. Um, you know, I, it just—but like I said— uh, I haven't debated this with anyone um, ever, so I don't. Maybe I could be convinced of something. And and reading your response, Josh, and your instructor uh, and their take on it, I, you know, I see the point. We could, the whole the whole point is like our country politically. If if you so, there's one way of looking at it, which is like, well, it's just a religious identification, no big deal. But another way of looking at someone who labels themselves as a Christian therapist is with, within a sociopolitical, historical point of view, which is that Christians in our Western society in America have uh, been a part, politically and otherwise, of movements that exclude and harm certain groups of people, LGBTQ people, black people, um, atheists, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, people who listen to rap music, for example. And that is, uh, that's our reality. That's the history we come from. So when someone labels themselves as Christian, then you're in part uh, giving off this message that maybe you also are a part of that dominant culture and that, that history, and you approve of that history. Now, of course, many Christians would say, that's ridiculous. Why? Why would that be ascribed to me? But you know, we live in a context, and we don't, um, we can't get out of that context. And so, some clients, when they see that word Christian, will be like, "Oh, I don't want to see that that therapist," and therefore, they are denied help because you are choosing to identify yourself as 
as a Christian right from the beginning. Cause it, and, and it is kind of interesting too, because, um, it, I just call myself a therapist, right? I don't call myself an atheist therapist or a Christian therapist or a liberal therapist or a Republican therapist, or, uh, I don't call myself a, uh, pro-life therapist or a pro-choice therapist. I just call myself a therapist. So it is kind of weird that for, that we allow in our profession these these certain labels to be standard or okay, right? Um, you know, what if someone advertised themselves as a Muslim therapist? Certainly that would be okay. If, if Christian therapist is okay, then Muslim therapist should be okay. Atheist therapist should be okay, right? What if someone advertised themselves as an African-American therapist or an Asian-American therapist or a Jewish therapist or a trans therapist is, you know, that's going, that's going to exclude some people. Um, and it, you know, it just raises interesting questions, you know, on some level it's like, well, shouldn't therapists be allowed to advertise themselves however they want to? And I certainly have that libertarian streak, but there's this other part where it's like, well, we also live in a society where it's good that it's illegal that to, to discriminate against certain people, uh, you know, barring the recent Supreme court ruling that is much more nuanced than people are understanding in, in the general uh, discussions that it's okay for a, uh, cake. I think it was a cake maker to not make a cake for a gay wedding. Um, if you read the actual opinion from, the Supreme Court justices, um, you understand that it's much more complicated. I still wish they would have not ruled the way that they did, um, but but say la vie. Um, so uh, uh, what's my point here? The point is that it's an interesting question, and I think it raises a lot of questions. But the consensus that I know of and the way I feel about it, given my understanding of ethical codes and of how the world works, is that advertising yourself as a Christian therapist is not an ethical violation and also doesn't, doesn't mean to many people, at least in my area, that, um, that it's exclusionary. Um, Josh, you also say that it's a good way to get clients, right? Because if you advertise yourself as a Christian therapist, other Christians will flock to you because, um, there aren't that many Christian people. There's not a lot of people who identify themselves as Christian therapists. And since most people are Christian, then it, it seems like being a Christian therapist, you would be able to uh, get a benefit from that advertising as such. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm fairly sure a lot of therapists who advertise themselves as Christian therapists are either unknowing or they're either, um, they can either admit or they can't admit that they actually are doing that to actually get more clients. Certainly. Um, uh, there are also some Christian counselors who actually really like talking about religious issues with their clients and they want it to be a part of, of every client. And, and so they advertise themselves as, as that, you know, if you're a sex therapist, for example, that's another label of people say, I'm a sex therapist or I'm a marital therapist. I'm a family therapist. You know, you advertise yourself because you want to work with particular kinds of clients. And, um, I'm, you know, I'm guessing that you're right, Josh, that that's, that's a benefit to people. Um, so yeah, interesting question. 
but not an ethical violation. But I'm sure it was an interesting class discussion. Okay, let's take a break, and when we get back, we'll continue to respond to emails. All right, we're back from the break. If you could review us on iTunes, that would be cool. Also, become a patron by going to patreon.com. That's the best way you can show your support. Just got an email from famous patron Lyndon. Lyndon wrote in about a Michael Crichton essay of some sort, uh, and it says um, this uh, little bit here. It's about men and women and talking about feelings. Uh, Michael Crichton wrote, apparently, according to uh, famous patron Lyndon, quote, I don't really see women able... So, uh, so it says, let's see. So it goes on for a little bit about how uh, supposedly women are better at talking about their feelings than men are. You know, uh, men have a difficult time talking about their feelings and women have a have an easy time talking about their feelings. And then it says, but I don't really see women able to express their feelings any better than men. Women like to talk about feelings as men like to talk about football and computers. But when it comes to talking about your own feelings, I find that women suddenly stumble. In the workplace, around the dinner table, on that big date, I am not aware that a woman has an easier time expressing the hard truths, that her feelings are hurt, or that someone made her feel bad, or that she feels weak or sad or inadequate, unquote. Yeah, I agree with Michael Crichton on this point uh, uh, supremely. The, the, the simplistic black or white notion that some people have, that men have a hard time talking about feelings and women are good with feelings uh, is ridiculous. Uh, Take it from me as a person who works with uh, a lot of women professionally. I have observed that women might have a, when you average men and women, women, uh, I would say anecdotally for myself, women have an easier time talking about their feelings. But the average is just slightly off. The fact is, is most people in our society, and I'm guessing other societies as well, but I know my society well, everyone in our society has a hard time talking about their feelings. There are exceptions. There are some individuals that who can talk about their feelings very well, um, but it, t- it probably took some doing. They weren't um, like that when they were younger. They had to emerge from an oppressive society around feelings to um, begin to talk about their feelings. So by default, I would say everyone has a hard time talking about their feelings just because of the way our society is. And uh, a lot of people have problems talking about their feelings, women included, believe me. Uh, not only are, I, I see no difference in my clients. There, there is no difference in my, in my female, on average, uh, in my female clients and my male clients in terms of people identify as such in terms of their ability to talk about their feelings. I, um, I learned that long ago because I used to have that stereotype too. I used to be like, well, of course women are much better about talking about their feelings. And, uh, some women are, but, but some women are really, really not, uh, comfortable because our society is horrible to everyone regarding this. Um, the other area that I see that a lot of this is in my supervisees and my students. Um, 90% 90% of my students and supervisees are women. And a big part of becoming a therapist is the ability to talk about your feelings and the ability to tolerate feelings. And I have never met 
a student or a supervisee who wasn't uncomfortable with their client's feelings. Every uh, male or female supervisee, trainee that I've worked with has a very difficult time when their clients have difficult feelings. Um, and I see no difference between men or women regarding that uh, uh, you know, difficulty and the developmental growth that they have to go through. Um, so in, in some ways, I think men might even have it a little easier because it, they know and they've been told that they have a hard time talking about feelings. And so they admit to themselves and to others that they need to work on that. You know, male, male therapists know that, that they've been socialized to not talk about their feelings. Right. And so like, well, I better go to, I better get over that issue because, um, I want to be a therapist. And, And that was the journey I went on. Whereas some female therapists, because they are told by society that they're really great with feelings, they don't necessarily recognize as, as quickly when they also, just like men, have a hard time with emotions and are uncomfortable with emotions um, and have difficulty with vulnerability for themselves and with other people. You know, j- just take the, the small uh, sort of example, not small, but... Um, specific example of clients crying in session. So, uh, you know, clients cry in session, right? And uh, when I work with trainees, they're, they, I, don't, I haven't taken a poll on this, but I would say that every single trainee and supervisee I've worked with has reacted fairly um, uncomfortably to their clients crying when they first start out as a therapist. Um, you, you, and again, the stereotype is that, well, women are, are really great with vulnerability and they can, they can listen to people cry and not be threatened the way that men can. And the fact is, is that that binary uh, black and white point of view is silly. Uh, in general, everyone's uncomfortable with people crying, including women. And, I have, um, you know, worked on helping these therapists get rid of that social notion and to embrace vulnerability and to embrace tears um, as they develop. I've I've worked with um, everyone has that problem. (laughs) So, yeah, Uh, famous patron Lyndon, thanks for alerting me to that. And, um, yeah, Michael Crichton is right. I I don't know how, uh, I don't know Michael Crichton's, Politics, maybe he's a complete idiot. But on this idea, uh, I agree with him. Let's read another email. All right, this email is from an anonymous patron. Uh, But really, this email I get, I don't know, I'm guessing every other day I get an email uh, along these lines. Basically, the email is saying that she feels overly dependent on her therapist. She went through a lot of relational traumas as as a child, by being abused or abandoned in some ongoing severe way. And she really likes her therapist and she thinks about her therapist a lot. uh, Can't wait for the next session. Wants to see her therapist several times a week um, and might even be having romantic or sexual fantasies about her therapist. And I, I get emails, you know, 
basically with that all those features, um, like I said, probably every other day. And uh, so I just thought I'd provide my, and I know I've talked about this before, but I, I feel like maybe there's so many of you out there that are like this. You might need to be told this many times, which which makes sense because it's so complicated and fraught with um, social um, constructs about what therapy is and what's appropriate and inappropriate that you're probably confused and, and upset by it. But so, so here, so let me reiterate some things I've said before, which is that this is a very common experience in therapy, especially for people with childhood relational traumas. If, if you were abused or rejected throughout your life, you grow up and you're walking around and you look like an adult, but there's a part of you that is still a hurt, needy little child. And all of us retain some of that. But for people who were particularly abused or neglected and or neglected, they have a huge part of their selfhood that needs a lot of love and attention. And therefore, um, as an adult, when you meet a therapist who actually meets your needs in that way, you have an extreme outpouring of attachment and love and um, satisfaction and um, appreciation for that person because this person is finally giving you something that you deserved a long time ago. And uh, with those feelings of appreciation and love and attachment and um, all that comes with it uh, all the all these worries of, well, wait, what if this person rejects me? What if this person dies? What if this person thinks I'm a bad patient? What if this person closes their practice? Um, what if this person doesn't have time for me next week? Um, you know, these are normal worries. And that means that therapy is going well, honestly, because if, if these things weren't happening for you um, and you suffer from re- relational traumas, then the relationship isn't intense enough. So it just means that it's working. And, but it's not pleasant. You know, that anxiety about rejection from your therapist, it doesn't feel good. It feels awful. Uh, but, you know, that's part of the healing process. Uh, the key is, is that you just don't beat yourself up about it, which I hear a lot of emailers saying, you know, it's like, there's something wrong with me. I don't know why I feel this feeling. You know, I feel bad that I'm fantasizing sexually about my therapist. I feel bad that he, um, uh, I'm so dependent on him. I'm so I'm so upset that um, my therapist um, feels that I'm so needy or something. You know, do not beat yourself up about it. It's 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 natural. It's normal. It's it's um, totally understandable given the circumstances that you've been under. You you can't control your feelings. Is the point? So don't beat yourself up about them. Um, it's a normal part of the healing process of therapy. Um, The other questions that I get a lot from people is, you know, should I talk with my therapist about it? What what should I do about it? You know, what what do I do? And uh, the the short answer to that is, you don't need to do anything. Um, There there's nothing really to do about it. Uh, uh, Keep going to therapy. Keep healing. Um, If you feel like you want to bring it up with your therapist, go for it. But you don't have to. You know, there there's no there's no need, or, or particularly there's no central need for you to reveal to your therapist that you're in love with him or that you want to have sex with him or something, you know, you can, if you want to, uh, most good therapists are uh, good at being able to respond therapeutically to that. Um, 
you know, if you want to go for it. And, and it's not a violation of the therapy. It, uh, therapists should be ready for stuff like that. It's, it's normal part of the process. Uh, if you want to talk about it, go for it. But if, but if you don't want to, don't worry about it and, and don't think about it. You know, don't, don't think about the question about whether or not you need to tell them, you know, I get a lot of people say, Oh, you know, should I tell him? What should I say? I don't want to hurt his feelings. I don't want to push him away. And you know, the thing is, is like, it doesn't, doesn't matter. You, you can tell him, you could not tell him that's com- very, very uh, distant priority to the primary priority that you stay in therapy, that you continue to absorb their secure attachment, that you continue to build trust in other human beings, that you continue to learn that some human beings on this planet are dependable, non-abusive, non-rejecting, nice, uh, loving individuals who actually love you for who you are, not for what you can be or look like or something. So just continue, continue going down that road. You know, it might be five, ten years before you feel better. It's going to be a long journey. But the the worry and anxiety about what do I do with these feelings and, you know, how do I tell my therapist or what if my therapist hates me for these feelings? Like, you know, it doesn't um, – it's it's not a priority in, in my guess given the emails that I get from people. Um, like I said, if you want to tell your therapist, go for it. Nothing wrong with that good therapists can totally be able to handle that. People have told me that before, you know, they've told me they're in love with me or they, you know, uh, have sexual fantasies about me and I'm at work. You know, you're not, when a client tells me that we're not at a bar having drinks together, you know, this is, I'm at work. This person's a client. Um, I'm professional about it. Um, it doesn't make me giggle. It's just like, Oh, interesting. Well, that, that means that one therapy is working and, um, wow, what a great thing you just did that, to reveal that to me. It took a lot of guts to tell me and to trust me that I wouldn't ridicule you and that, that I would um, not run away. You know, that's a great show of trust in me, and I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, after the session's over, I, I don't worry about it. I don't think about it. It's, it's, it's okay. It's, uh, feelings are feelings. And like I said, for people who have been relationally traumatized as children— <clears throat> um, it's extremely common to have those feelings come pouring out when you finally have a secure attachment. It's, it's been noticed back in the Freudian days. It's, it's a human thing there. It's not a new thing. Um, and it's human. Now you don't hear many stories about it cause our society is fucked up and no one wants to talk about it. So, but take it from me, totally normal par for the course for particular kinds of conditions. Okay. Let's read another email. But actually, before we go on to another email, I, I want to say that just because it's par for the course doesn't mean that your feelings are invalid or not valid. It doesn't mean that your feelings are somehow um, not real. Uh, your feelings are real. When, when you have love or sexual attraction for your therapist, those are real feelings. They're not fake feelings. They're not silly feelings. They're not childish feelings. They're feelings. They're real feelings. And they are the same sorts of feelings that people have in other contexts when they are in love with their spouse or they want to have sex with their, with someone on Tinder. These are real feelings of lust. They're real feelings of love and attachment and romantic love. They're real feelings. So don't want to give the impression that I'm saying that there's, they're not real feelings. They're totally real. Having said that, those very real feelings are, um, a 
uh, a symptom that things are going well in therapy. And given the overall goal to help the client heal, that both the client and the therapist have that goal, those feelings cannot be um, acted on um, because it will harm, it will, it'll bring the relationship into a different kind of relationship that won't be therapeutic for the client and very likely will traumatize the client and very likely will have the therapist lose their license, maybe lose their marriage, um, uh, make them feel terrible about themselves. So it's a very real feeling that uh, just can't be uh, acted on, right? Okay, let's read another email. Oh, yeah. So I did an episode recently about rape fantasies. It was a patron-only episode, patron-exclusive episode, in which I went into the history and the research and the perspectives and the psychodynamics, so to speak, of people who fantasize about rape, and about being raped or even raping other people, and how these are these are just fantasies. They're uh, mo- vast majority of the time completely divorced from any kind of wish for reality. So I, I did an episode on that, and at the end of the episode, I asked, uh, sort of, um, a- I ad libbed or spontaneously asked people if they wanted to, they could send me in their own rape fantasies. Um, I'm not sure why I asked people <laughs> to do that, but that's what came out of my mouth at the end of that episode. And so, um, so some of you did, and I just want to acknowledge that uh, many of you did that. <laughs> and and the, the thing that I'll say that I talked a little bit about in the episode, but want to further emphasize, emphasize here, is that there are people who identify with many different genders, male, female, queer, non-binary, and otherwise, who will have fantasized, who, who have fantasies, frequent fantasies of being raped. You know, we often so associate uh, rape fantasies with women, but certainly other gender identification people can also have fantasies about being raped. There are also fantasies that I didn't really talk about in the episode so much that people have about raping other people. And um, that also can go either direction in terms of um, gender or any direction in terms of gender. Um, this, this, it was interesting to read some of your actual rape fantasies because, uh, again, many of you felt at least slightly ashamed, if not very ashamed of them, or at least kind of creeped out by your own fantasies or something. I don't know. And I just want to further emphasize that there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with fantasies. There's, there's only things... There's only something wrong if you harm other people in real life, um, in general. Uh, sometimes fantasies about something can actually lead to things, but um, for the, I mean, if if you just actually recorded everyone's sexual fantasies that they've, particularly that they've ever had, you know, that every thought they've ever had while they were masturbating or having sex, or just daydreaming about sex, you would everyone would have some crime in there of some sort. <laughs> I mean, everybody, uh, if not half of their fantasies would involve some sort of crime, whether it be exposing themselves, other people or having sex in public or, or rape or, um, incest or, uh, other kinds of things, blood, uh, S and M, uh, violence there, you know, it's people are weird. Sex is weird. And, um, 
or I should say people are weird and sex is particularly weird. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. It's beautiful. Life is beautiful. Sex is beautiful in all of its different forms. So anyway, thanks for sending in your emails about that. Okay, this message is from patron Kyla. Kyla wrote, I came across the Rules of Therapy episode on YouTube, and I was, that was our episode. I came across your episode called The Rules of Therapy on YouTube, and I was so surprised to hear you say that offering advice, not questioning why, or offering a tissue is, is not completely off limits. So basically what Kyla is saying is, um, in that episode, I talked about how there's a lot of these rules that are taught in training programs, like never offer advice or never ask why, or never offer a tissue to somebody. And I find that these rules are just completely stupid. I mean, there, I, you know, there, there are some things that programs will teach that I can kind of get, but these ones, I'm just like, there, 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 there are many training programs where you have, uh, you know, quote unquote, qualified professors talking about how you should never ask your client why you should never ask why. And I, I just find whenever I hear that, I, I'm thinking either that professor is not a real therapist or, or doesn't actually um, practice as a therapist, which you'd be surprised. There are some instructors who have actually never, never actually conducted therapy, which is um, very strange to me. Or the instructor is very new and has um, really no idea what they're talking about. Um, or, or some people are just really stupid, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, the notion that therapy can be reduced to these you know, really, I don't know, arbitrary uh, rules are just, is so stupid. As I talked about in the episode, I understand the spirit. I understand where they come from. You know, it's like, um, uh, the, the whole thing about never ask your client why I suspect comes from that some therapists, some novice therapists, uh, will be judgmental about their clients and will, ask their clients to justify their feelings. You know, a, a client comes in and says like, you know, I've, I've, my, my husband died 10 years ago and I'm, I'm still really sad and depressed about it. And you have this stupid therapist who says like, why, why are you still upset about that? So in that instance, yeah, that's, that's a really stupid, horrific, judgmental thing for the therapist to have said. And it happened to have started with the question, why? <laughs> um, but there are many times when I'm talking with a client and I legitimately want to know why, you know, they'll say something like, um, so I'm, I'm really concerned about my job. I, I, I'm really worried about the place I'm working in. And I'll say, huh, why? <laughs> like, uh, what else am I supposed to ask in that situation? You know, um, there's, there's a lot of different ways I could ask the question without saying the word why, right? I could be like, how come you have those feelings? Or tell me more. Or what would you like to tell me about your work? But essentially what I'm asking is why? Why are you feeling that? <laughs> I want to know more. The, the, you know, the question exists in the English language for a reason. And the question why is not inherently judgmental, right? Uh, of course not. It's idiotic. Other rules I hear is like, never cross your arms, never cross your legs. Um, this one, don't give them, uh, don't give them a tissue. I have no idea where that comes from. Uh, don't offer advice. Um, you know, again, 
I understand, especially with the offering advice one, I understand where that one comes from. The crossing your legs is so stupid. The idea that just by not crossing your legs that you will convey empathy towards people or openness. It's like, um, no, that's dumb. Um, there are people who are blind, who can't have eye contact with you, who can, as therapists, give you a supreme sense of empathy and, and attentiveness. Um, and I guarantee you I can cross my legs and give and convey what's truly in my heart, which is I'm really listening to you. So my legs and my arms have nothing to do with uh, emotion and the vibe that I'm giving across to people. I mean, it has something to do with it, but it's, you know, it's uh, out of 10,000 factors, it is, let's say it's one of them, but it's an insignificant one. Um, being open is a state of mind and it's something that you convey only because it's in your heart. If you, if you in your heart are open, it doesn't matter what your body's doing. Uh, and conversely, if you have your legs not crossed and your arms not crossed, not crossed and your heart is not open to your client, your client will feel that anyway. So the not giving advice makes sense because, uh, many novice therapists think and I used to think this too, that therapy is about offering advice. Someone comes in and is like, oh, I don't know what to do. Um, you know, my husband is a, a jerk sometimes. And, and you know, I, sometimes I think about divorce, but I don't know. And then the therapist is like, well, you know, sometimes divorcing and moving on, that's the best option. You know, I think, I think maybe you should get divorced. Now, that's a stark example, pretty extreme one, but, um, but a good one and one that some therapists that I've heard of have, have done things like that. So, and that is, yeah, that's abhorrent to therapy, uh, to basically, uh, I mean, 99% of the time when you do that, the client will feel like you're a terrible therapist. They'll be like, yeah, my therapist just told me to divorce my husband. And I don't know, I, I don't like my therapist. So, so you'll immediately alienate your clients if you do stuff like that. Um, and then there's a small percentage of the time where the, where the client will just do what the therapist said because the client doesn't have a good sense of self and will just defer to the therapist's opinion. So yeah, just giving advice in that sort of ham-fisted, really ridiculous fashion is something that therapists do and something that obviously should be avoided. Having said that, I do not know a single therapist who does not give advice. You know, giving advice like... Um, I don't think you should beat yourself up about your feelings. You know, someone comes in and is like, you know, it's, it's been, it's been six months since my husband died and I'm still really sad about it. I just feel like there's something wrong with me. The, if you're a good therapist, you'll say something to the effect of don't beat yourself up about that. It's okay that you're still feeling those feelings. Um, that's essentially advice. You are essentially advising your client to think differently and to even behave differently you know, don't beat yourself up about that. Feel your feelings, feeling those, your feelings of grief are normal. You are, you are telling your client how to think and you're telling your client what to do. Now it's, it's, it's telling your client something good. It's offering good advice. It's offering good perspective, but you're still offering advice and offering perspective. And every, every, every therapist who that is good. We'll say something along those lines or even more specifically, like a client will say like, um, I'd like to talk about how to quit smoking or let's say how to quit drinking. Uh, you know, I want to talk about how to quit drinking and, you're like, and you feel qualified enough to have that conversation. 
Well, it's going to involve a lot of advice giving, you know, don't go to the bars, don't have alcohol in your house, have other ways of coping with difficult emotions that don't involve drinking. Maybe you shouldn't hang out with your drinking buddies anymore. That's advice. That is advice. And it's good advice, but it's advice. And um, to say to never give advice is denying good help to clients. One, two, it basically invalidates everything you say as an instructor because it doesn't take very long before therapists will head off into the field. They're like, wait a second. I feel like I'm asking why a lot and I feel like it's fine. I'm also providing just clear advice to people. And I also feel like that's fine. And my supervisor says that's okay. In fact, my supervisor says I should be giving advice in that instance. So what the hell was that one professor talking about when I wasn't supposed to cross my arms and I wasn't supposed to give him tissue and I wasn't supposed to ask why, and I wasn't supposed to offer advice. Um, what the hell was that all about? (laughs) And so it just boggles the mind. And there were people in my program who would do that as well, who would, you know, I t- I'm next quarter, summer quarter, we we're on quarters, not semesters. So starting in July, I'm going to teach applied family therapy. It's a, you know, family therapy class in which we, I, I teach how to be a family therapist. You know, it's not the theory. It's, it's actually, you know, what do you do in particular situations? And one of the first things I talk about is, okay, who's heard the rule? You're not supposed to cross your legs <laughs> and like half the class or maybe all of them raise their hand. I'm, I'm like, okay, that's dumb. Forget that rule. Who heard the rule? You're supposed to listen really well to your clients. You know, they raise their hand. I'm like, that's a good rule. Keep that one. Who heard the rule that you're not supposed to ask why? Um, you know, half the class raise their hand. I'm like, okay, that, that rule's dumb. Forget about that. You know, and I just have to go through all these different rules to like, <laughs> state my opinion about which ones they can reject and which ones they can't. And I feel terrible because I, I'm, but I feel terrible towards the professor because I'm basically shit talking this other professor in my program. But at the same time, I can't have my, my students walking around with these idiotic notions in their head. Um, so what do I do? You know, who takes precedent, the feelings of this other professor or the training of my, my students who are going to go out into the world and try to help people. Um, you know, I'm going to choose the students over the professor. I'm sorry. And since I'm not program director anymore and I don't have control over these things, I can't just go to that professor and yell at them and say, stop it. (laughs) I wouldn't do that anyway, I suppose. But, um, and as a secondary kind of issue, which I'm guessing some of you might be asking, it's like, well, couldn't you go to the professor and have a conversation about it, you know, and work it out? And yeah, yeah I, uh, maybe. But conversations like that between professors can be extremely difficult. Um, and I've had them. I've had many of them. The um, to, to go to some professors are very open to debate and very open to even being told that they're teaching something wrong. I would like to hope I'm one of those people, but I don't know. Um, But there are many professors who hate those kinds of conversations or are so insecure about their teaching that they don't want to even start to have a conversation about that or are so kind of stuck in their ways. They believe that they're always right. Um, that's a frequent factor. The the thing I've observed about instructors is they're almost universally the most arrogant people 
in the room and the most insecure. They, um, they are used to being at the top of the heap because, because they're instructors, right? And they're used to, they're used to students listening to them. And I include myself in that, in the same category. Um, along these lines, I was hanging out with Michael Drain the other night and he went to the bathroom and he came out of the bathroom and he was looking at his phone in the bathroom. That's why I was talking about him in the bathroom. Uh, that's an important detail. <laughs> I'm going to the bathroom. He comes out of the bathroom and sits down at the table and he's like, oh my God, um, someone's attacking you on the Facebook fan group. Because, you know, there's a there's a Psychology in Seattle fan group that um, on Facebook that I don't go to because I want people to feel like they could talk about whatever they want to. And there's this one guy that who was attacking me because I... Um, was talking about, I can't remember the exact circumstance, but I was talking about biological um, explanations for emotion and fear versus environmental or cultural or something. And um, he was some sort of angry comment, angry post about how I'm arrogant and I don't know what I'm talking about or um, and I'm biased against biological explanations or something. And... Uh, and Drain was like, oh, man, this guy's an asshole. Um, we need to attack this guy. Da, da, da. He, he didn't say that. But he, say, he said, this guy's an asshole. You know, he's, he's being a complete asshole to you. And, and I just thought um, it didn't affect me. I mean, certainly there are some comments that can affect me. Um, people will be mean sometimes, and it certainly will get under my skin. But that one, for whatever reason, didn't. Um, and so... I just told Drain, it's like, um, well, one, yeah, yeah uh, I'm probably guilty as charged that I can be biased against some biological explanations, and uh, it's not my area of study. So um, I don't claim to be an expert in that, so I, I'm offering opinion. And, but in general, what I hold to be uh, what I believe in is that our society and, and many people in my field are are too in love with biological explanations and don't acknowledge sociocultural, political, historical factors when they are observing psychological or behavioral phenomenon phenomena. So it's, uh, that's my point uh, often is that, um, I don't, I, by no means am I denying biological factors. Certainly there are biological factors on our reality. We, um, exi- we are a body. We are an animal. We have a squishy nervous system that is material and um, is limited and has certain evolved characteristics, and that's all uh, demonstrated and obvious. But we are also um, set up evolutionary-wise to absorb our society, and many of our attitudes and our behavior and our preferences have been culturally learned through, you know, through time. For example, I love to eat very stinky Japanese food. And I'm not talking about sushi. I'm talking about, you know, fermented uh, snot-looking tofu. (laughs) Uh, Disgusting things that most Americans, vast majority of Americans, many Japanese Americans think is disgusting, whereas I like it. Why? Because I learned to like it because I learned to eat it when I was a kid and I associate it with good things. Um, it's arguably really disgusting, <laughs> empirically disgusting. So why do I like that? 
one thing and other people don't. Well, it's not from biology. It's because of culture and learning. Um, so I find that a lot of people have a hard time uh, understanding that. And so I spend a lot of time arguing against biological explanations because I'm not because I'm trying to deny them, but because I'm trying to um, bolster and make my argument that culture, history, society, and learning play a much bigger role than people typically give it credit for. Um, and when we understand that, we are better able to be clinicians, but we're also better able to change our own behavior for the better. And we're better able to change our systems so that we end up changing things that we want to change. You know, to believe that racism is, that we're born with racism is um, problematic because we're like, well, you know, people are born that way. And certainly there are some things that we're likely born with. You know, we're likely born with a preference for familiar faces, right? So the more we see our parents, um, you know, we tend to end up liking people who look like our parents and we tend to be afraid of people who don't look like our parents. So if you have a white mother, um, you will probably, and they've studied this, that even by like three or six months, you already tend to prefer white faces. And, um, and by definition, uh, six-month-old babies are racist, <laughs> you know, um, and so uh, certainly, so certainly that you know it's all measurable and real. But the notion that like the KKK or white supremacy or believing that Mexicans are lazy is somehow innate and we're born with that is ridiculous. There's that's so dumb. So, um, so how did I get on that topic? <laughs> I'm free associating. How did I get here? Oh, well, for some reason I was going down a road in which Michael Drain was telling me something that was written on the Facebook fan group and I was reacting to that. And so I'm explaining um, my bias. Oh, so yeah. So what I told Drain was like, well, yeah, I am biased against biological explanations because I have a bone to pick there. Yeah. So the the guy attacking me on Facebook is right and correct in that I am biased. Yeah. And also that I'm arrogant, you know, because because the guy on Facebook was saying I'm an arrogant prick or something. And I just told Drain, yeah, that doesn't bother me either because I am arrogant. Uh, I know that. Um, and I know I, I don't I, I don't hold belief systems that I think I'm better than other people by no means. But I know that I come across as arrogant. I know that there is a um, way that I am that causes people to dislike me because they think that I'm arrogant. I've had people have said that to me enough times in my life for me to realize, Oh, this isn't just an isolated one individual distortion of me. This, but I must be coming across to people in a way that makes them think that I am high on my own supply. <laughs> um, and, um, certainly there are elements of my personality in which I am high in my own supply in which I, I prefer myself over other people in ways that are probably above average. Um, and so, um, I, I know that about myself and I have to put pressure against that or else, um, I'm going to hurt other people's feelings or I'm going to make other people um, feel bad about themselves or I'm going to belittle people or I'm going to at the very least make a fool out of myself because I'm going to look arrogant when I don't want to look arrogant, you know, I want to look like a likable dude. 
<laughs> and knowing that about myself is has been a journey, and um, that's my that's my problem that I have uh, emerged into adulthood with. I could tell you where it comes from, uh, but I don't have time. That's another episode. <laughs> um, yeah. So that is for patron Kyla. Yeah. The rules of therapy, silly. And, um, uh, there are some rules to therapy, like don't have sex with your clients, but to reduce the complex human healing experience of therapy to a set of dumb rules misunderstands the whole enterprise and and diminishes it and demeans it to a set of behaviors that if you follow, you will be an effective therapist, which is ridiculous. Um, I understand. Another reason why I think they teach it is because, um, if you don't have something to teach, you know, if you're, if you're tasked with teaching young therapists how to be therapists and you don't really understand therapy yourself, then that is a scary scenario. And so you're going to, you're going to look toward concrete things that make sense to you. And so that's where these rules come in. So you're just like, well, if I, I'll just teach them these rules. I mean, I have, I have students who come to my class or people who talk to me who say that in class they would do role plays in which they were primarily being graded on whether or not they were crossing their legs or not and and, and whether or not they had constant eye contact. Um, I'm here to tell you that constant eye contact is a little creepy. <laughs> Sometimes you want to be completely locked in on someone's eyes, but there are other times when it just doesn't call for that and, and, and can be very odd feeling, you know, to have someone just staring unblinkingly into your eyeballs is unnerving sometimes given certain contexts. Now, under some, you absolutely, eye contact is a big deal and a big part of how clients experience therapy and a big part of how you can communicate. And some people struggle with it. Some people have a hard time with eye contact and will avoid it and need to work on that. But these notions of just reducing the complex relationship of therapy to these simple rules, you know, so other, Oh, so Kyla, you asked, what are the other rules? So, so in your email, you're like, what other rules are being taught to uh, trainees that are wrong? And um, uh, so let me think. Um, well, well, one rule that I hear about sometimes is to never touch your clients. Um, but that's an oversimplification. I mean, in general, when in doubt, yeah, don't touch your clients. But there are times when touching your clients is fine. Shaking hands, hugging can be um, totally therapeutic and, and ethical under certain circumstances. Uh, when you, If you work with kids, if you work with young kids, like five-year-olds, there's no way you're not going to touch your client. <laughs> I mean, not only are there sometimes when you physically have to grab them so they don't fall down or... I don't know, they don't swallow a Lego or something like, uh, so there's times when you absolutely should grab them. But there are other times when they're just going to walk up to you and sort of drape themselves over you or something, you know, and, um, or they're going to want to sit close to you and read a book. And to say that there can be no touching, you know, arrested development, no touching, um, is not only just very, very weird as a rule, but also denies clients a therapeutic environment in which they need to flourish. So, so again, 
touch is a very complicated thing. I've talked about in the podcast many times before, but but to say never touch your clients is is an oversimplification. Another one that I hear people say is um, never accept a gift from a client. Never accept a gift. It's unethical to accept a gift. It is not unethical to accept a gift. It can be considered uh, an ethical you know, problem. Uh, it, could, it could certainly be considered a massive ethical violation if you're like, I need gifts from you all the time or else I won't help you. you know, like, certainly there's that. Um, or setting up a situation where clients are competing for your attention by giving a gift or something. Yeah, absolutely. But there are certain situations when not only is it totally okay to take a gift from a client, but sometimes it might be actually really therapeutic. So, and counter-therapeutic to not accept the gift. So gifts are um, complicated, just like touching is complicated, but you can't reduce it to a rule. Uh, some some instructors, I've heard this before, will have a rule that you never self-disclose. Never self-disclose. It's unethical to self-disclose. Uh, this one is patently wrong. It is completely against evidence and idiotic to never. Yeah. If you don't want to self-disclose, that's fine. <laughs> but if but there, if you're okay with self-disclosing and you are self-disclosing as a therapist at times for therapeutic purposes... Um, not only is that okay, but it actually is supported by the evidence that you're overall going to be a more effective therapist. So, um, so that rule of never self-disclosing is actually counter to the ethical guideline of doing the best job you can for your clients. Again, if you don't want to self-disclose about something, then don't, you know, but, but if you, if you're cool with it, then, um, it can really be used effectively. There's certain guidelines and I've talked about it in episodes about self-disclosure. Um, some, some people will say like, never go on social media with your clients or, you know, Facebook or never text your client or never use Snapchat with your client or something. And again, these are oversimplifications in general. Uh, if when in doubt, don't, but there are times when not only is it okay, but it might actually be very therapeutic, particularly if that's the world they live in. I don't know. Um, I don't, I don't Facebook with my clients. Um, I also know Facebook with listeners, honestly. So, so, so some of the listeners will find me on Facebook and friend me. And, um, I, you know, friending my clients on Facebook, because clients will friend me on Facebook too, and I'll, I will, you know, won't confirm the friendship on Facebook. Um, with clients, it makes sense, right? Because um, I, I have a professional boundary between my personal life and my client you know, what I tell my clients and, and that's a, that's, you know, pretty standard. Uh, you could, you could make an argument if you had a effective practice and ethical practice of friending your, uh, clients on Facebook, there's nothing inherently unethical about it. You would just have to be very careful about what kind of things you end up revealing to your clients on Facebook. But, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a friend with a client. I, I recently had a, um, instructor, email me and she's like, um, I heard from other instructors that it's not okay to be Facebook friends with a student. Is, is that true? And, and you know, it, it's nuanced and I could talk for an hour about, you know, instructors or, um, being, you know, friends, Facebook friends with their students, but there's no policy against that. We're all adults. It's fine. Um, there's certain guidelines you want to follow so that you don't harm your profession or your, your own occupation or your own life. And also obviously you don't want to harm the student. 
so you know there's things to go over but uh but i'm friends with many of my with with many of my student former and current um so so there's a lot of different um guidelines to follow that but um so in general you don't want to do it but uh, when in doubt but you know there's times when it can be okay particularly if you're a particular kind of therapist i suppose i don't know um you know, there's a lot of things we disclose all the time uh, online and otherwise, and and no one freaks out about some of this stuff, but somehow certain kinds of disclosures are considered off limits. Um, you know, the fact, as again, the fact is, is that therapy is a very weird thing. And, uh, and it's hard to know what exactly works with any particular client. And it's a, it's a relationship. It's a healing space. And, there are no rules, again, other than having sex with your clients. Um, there, there's very few things that you could definitively say are completely automatically untherapeutic and, and uncalled for. Um, again, having sex with your client, being friends with your client is generally frowned upon and, or generally untherapeutic, I should say. Um, you know, but crossing your legs, saying why, um, self-disclosing, accepting a gift. Uh, these are not slam dunks in terms of, you know, unhelpful things. They're usually unhelpful, but not always. Anyway, um, there, I like the word guideline, which is often used, which I'm trying to use in this episode. It's like, you know, it's okay to have guidelines. It's okay to have considerations. It's okay to, um, when in doubt, fall back on a simplistic rule. You know, if you think touching a client, if you're unsure, then just fall back on on the oversimplified rule of don't touch your clients. You know, if you're unsure, don't do it. But um, with some thought and consultation, supervision, consideration, some touch in therapy can not only just be just neutral and fine, but also can be very therapeutic. Um, so, you know, so that's all that. Having said that, I know a lot of therapists who have a very liberal attitude about touching in therapy and uh, use it to very untherapeutic, um, means have very uh, untherapeutic moments in what, you know, I, there was this one therapist I knew about who, uh, a male and so the female client was talking with me and she, she's like, so I was with this therapist and I started crying. This was like session two or three and I was crying about this thing. And the therapist got up off, you know, got up out of his chair and sat down right next to me on the couch and put his arm around me while I was crying. And I was extremely uncomfortable with that. <laughs> so, so what my point is, is I'm not saying that touching is like a free for all and like always good. It is not always good. I've done whole episodes about how touching can be, extremely untherapeutic and harmful and traumatic for some clients. So it's not a matter of saying there are no rules or, or, well, it's not a matter of saying everything's okay. (laughs) It's a matter of there's nuance and there's consideration. And, um, there's some things that are, uh, going to be harmful and there's some, you know, it'd be like, to me, it's like saying, um, it's like, it's like watching a, a therapy session 
and you're watching these two people talking back and forth. Client says something, therapist says something. And the client walks out of the session and says, that was a terrible session. I feel traumatized by that session. And instead of actually drilling down on the nuance, you actually just create a rule that you can no longer talk as a therapist. You know, as an instructor, you just say, okay, new rule, never talk to your clients. Because I saw these two people talking, it was harmful to the, to the client, and therefore, no more talking with your clients. That's what it's like. That's, that's, that's what no touching, don't cross your legs, don't ask why, don't ask. That's, that's what it's like. You're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You're just like oversimplifying the situation to avoid bad things happening. And you're, and you're eliminating not only, you know, the bad things, but you're also eliminating like all these other potentially neutral or good things. Anyway, so that does it for that long episode of Psychology in Seattle, in which I answer your questions. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I don't think I've ever said it quite like that. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it satisfies my arrogant uh, narcissism to have people listen to me. Um, and I don't have to subject people in my personal life to my ramblings as much as I would otherwise. So I guess to all my friends and family, they thank you as well for allowing me to vent into a microphone for a few hours a week. Uh, and I spare them those three hours. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it's great that you listen and uh, gives a lot of meaning to my life. I like to email back and forth with you guys and uh, hear your thoughts and answer your questions and ask you guys questions and uh, get to know you. At, you know, at the live event, for example, we have our 10-year anniversary show, August 11, at the North, North City North City Bistro. August 11, 3 o'clock, go to the Facebook page for more information. Um, at this point, I think it's like first come, first serve, and there's not a lot of seats. <laughs> so I'm slightly worried about capacity, but hopefully things will work out. I have sort of a plan if things if things get real tight in the room. I, I have another plan, I guess. <laughs> anyway, take care of yourself out there because you deserve it. You really, really do. <laughs>